This episode of Strange Assembly is brought to you by www.l5rsearch.com. L5rsearch.com is a comprehensive online L5R card database with tools to assist in optimizing your decks, proxying cards, or simply finding out about unusual cards. Once you know what you need, www.l5rshop.com puts cards in your hands quickly and economically. This is Strange Assembly, episode 119, Kneel Before Isawa. That's, that's a pretty terrible episode title. <laughs> but that's, that's what you wanted to talk about, Fred, right? About how, how Isawa is just like General Zod forcing the noble Sheba. To bow before him? No? <laughs> okay. I, I, I would have sworn we'd... No. Well, that is uh, Fred Wan laughing at me. I am Chris Stevenson. This is Strange Assembly. You can check us out at strangeassembly.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, or visit us at facebook.com slash strangeassembly or at strangeassembly on Twitter. Today is going to be another one of our setting discussions, and we're going to start out with the topic that Fred mentioned last time, which is the uh, formation of the Phoenix as a clan, I guess, that or that one incident. I guess we'll see how far it goes. That's fair. I think, I think it's right to characterize it as the formation of the clan and go from there. Yeah, and uh, just in case anybody has uh, forgotten, Fred is the on the story team for Legend of the Five Rings and is the continuity editor for the fictions. You're not continuity on the RPG, right? I'm not on the RPG team at the moment just because there isn't enough time in the day to do everything. <laughs> I say, yeah, because I, uh, I saw some continuity gripes about Secrets of the Empire. <laughs> I have not worked on the RPG in a few years, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I didn't didn't think you had. Uh, so, now, the the Asawa thing, this is a uh, Fred-generated topic, and I guess the you'll probably go into more detail about the aspects that you want to do, but the, the general scope of the storyline that, that you want to address is it's the first war against Fu Lang, Shinsei is attempting to assemble the Seven Thunders. Isawa is, we know, is going to end up as the Phoenix Thunder. And Shiba and Shinsei go to the uh, the territory controlled by Isawa because the Isawa are completely independent of the Kami at this point. And Isawa agrees to come with Shiba and help him and technically swear fealty to the Shiba, but he he literally makes uh, Shiva bow to him or kneel before him in the course of this. And um, I believe that you wanted to talk about how this is something other than just an adulterated arrogance on the part of Isawa. Although I'm not, I'm not sure how much people necessarily think of it as just that way. But is that a fair general outline, Fred? Yeah, I'd say so. Should I just get into it then? I just... Get into it. Okay. Well, one thing I've observed is a lot of players can get their heads around how this was an act of selflessness and nobility 
and humility on the part of Shiva, because he's a Kami and he's kneeling to a mortal. But a lot of players also assume that since Shiva is being humble, Isawa must in that instance also be asking an unreasonable thing or being excessively arrogant or hubristic in doing so. So I kind of wanted to just go over a more complete kind of framework of looking at that relationship and the formation of the phoenix, because generally speaking, the founders of each family and clan greatly influence the narrative role of those families and clans. And if you see that formation of the phoenix to be grounded on ego, then that colors your perception of everything else Siasawa and the phoenix do. One thing I kind of wanted to correct at the outset, though, is technically, Isawa's not swearing fealty to Shiba. If anything, I think it's much closer to Shiba swearing fealty to Isawa in his line, and I'll get into that shortly. Um, I know Chris knows most of this, so I want to make sure it's not too repetitive, but I do want to cover it, uh, because it's a very interesting point for the Phoenix, which is the only clan where the Kami's line, uh, other than the Moto is not dominant most of the time in the history of the clan. The reason I I used that particular phrase, swear fealty, is actually because before we recorded, I did my homework. <laughs> and that was the turn of phrase used in Way of the Phoenix, which, right. I mean, is, again, right, let's, the usual proviso, Way of Books, not, you know, necessarily totally historically accurate, May have been other things covered since that time, but a lot of times the the way of books are the the genesis of a lot of the thematics and flavor. I think that then carry on through the story. So I mean that's why I use that particular turn of phrase. And, and I don't think you're you're technically wrong either. It's just I think an accurate modern envisioning of that relationship and that scene probably points towards. Well, I don't think it's controversial that the Asawa are the dominant family in the Phoenix. I don't I do not believe that there is any controversy about that subject. I mean you right, we've we've already seen the Ivory Edition quote unquote clan champions previewed and the Phoenix one is not actually the clan champion. Again. Yeah, right. uh, <laughs> and and that's I think accurate to how the clan works. So Shiba and Shinsei go to Isawa and and ask his help. And Isawa, at the first request, refuses on the basis that the kami have fallen from heaven, they've taken over, and they haven't successfully discharged their obligations as leaders. Their followers are under attack, and the kami are failing at protecting them. That's how Isawa sees it. The second issue, and the, the one that really informs that kneeling, is Isawa has followers, and he's sworn to protect them, to care for them, to ensure their prosperity. And he responds to Shiba and Shinsei with, if I go with you, I'm probably going to die. And I'm not going to be around to fulfill and discharge that oath and that obligation. And Isawa is taking that the, the duties of a leader seriously. He cannot simply lay them aside. And at this point in time, he doesn't have that much respect for the kami as a general concept either. Big K kami as opposed to little K kami. Because he doesn't think they have done what they are supposed to do as the leaders of their followers. So there is some discussion, probably not negotiation, it's more persuasion. And eventually he agrees, but he tells Shiba, if I can't be there to fulfill that, that to discharge that obligation, you will. 
and I'm not going to betray my followers by putting them into a subservient role. So I'll swear fealty to you. But you and your line are going to kneel before mine. And for most of the players in the Empire, it's really very straightforward to grasp why Sheba is being noble in casting aside his station, because Sheba sees it almost as a social contract, right? Isawa's help, which is kind of one of a kind, no one else in the Empire is anywhere close, he's the one we need to do what Shinsei tells us to do. But the rest of the Empire in-universe, and the Phoenix and Isawa in particular, don't see this as Isawa extorting Shiba. They see this as the proper exercise of feudal obligation and the proper generation of a legitimate relationship. The, the Shiba in setting, for most of the characters that have been portrayed in setting, see the Shiba's role as secondary to Isawa as proper because there was a, an oath made in good faith one where Isawa clearly upheld his end of the bargain, it is only right and proper and honorable that the Shiba discharge that obligation through service. It's not improper for the Isawa to insist on this, because both it's clear that Isawa fulfilled his obligation. So the Shiba family is not going to betray the word of their founder by failing to hold up their end. And the Asawa see this as completely appropriate because that's the bargain that was made. And from the Asawa perspective, it really was almost akin to Shiba and his line swearing subservient fealty to them. It's not a matter of arrogance to them, it's a matter of merit. And it's a matter of fulfilling promises. And yeah, it's been over a thousand years, but neither family actually sees this as being inappropriate, unfair, exploitative, or anything like that, right? There there was the incident during the War of Spirits, roughly, with uh, Shiba Tsukune, I believe it was. But the canon says that when she broke the, the, the table of the Council of Masters and demanded a sixth seat, that she was being overwhelmed by the voices of the soul of Shiba. And she's the only really noticeable outlier in a prominent position for an extended period of time who is against that relationship or who feels that it's unfair. And it it really comes down to, in the setting, you know, living your life to partially pay back the debt of an ancestor from a thousand years ago is morally just. Yeah, that that was really it. I just wanted to cover that aspect because I think Phoenix players, not Phoenix players, players generally, uh, assume that Isawa was driven primarily by arrogance. And I think it's much more, certainly there was, uh, Isawa had a very high opinion of himself. But there was also an aspect of him saying, well, I have all these followers. What would you have me do to them? Would you have me abandon my oaths to them? No, not going to happen. There you go. Okay. Well, I think uh, another topic that you had mentioned that falls into the same sort of, I guess not stand up for Asawa, but stand up for the Phoenix as as a whole, is that I know you had wanted to 
add nuance to the the role of the the phoenix in the clan war and i i guess within the on, on the subject of the phoenix and the the taint was that i got that right that's correct and again so setting the the general scenario that we're dealing with here is yeah during the course of the the clan war was it four out of five of the elemental masters were that's right only kaede only kaede was not involved in the black scrolls and she left because she was being called to the oracle of void yeah yeah i mean even the phoenix thunder ends up tainted yes and they got they ended up tainted because they went around collecting and opening the black scrolls and of course Initially, opening the Black Skulls is what results in Fu Lang being able to possess the Emperor in in this very serious way and wreaks all sorts of havoc around the Empire. And so it plays into the temptation of the Phoenix falling to corruption. Are they uh, and that sort of thing? But I know. But the, the flip side of that, of course, is that the explorations of the Phoenix generally and specifically the opening of the Black Scrolls is also ultimately how Fulang gets defeated. So yeah. it, it, it it certainly involved, you know, a fall from grace on the part of some of the Phoenix, obviously especially Suke, but but it was also ultimately necessary for for victory. And uh, and so I guess you wanted to hold out on that subject. Sure. Again, my observation is that there's a significant number of players who believe that the Phoenix opened the Black Scrolls primarily seeking personal power and with no idea of the risks. They also generally, and this is more implicit, some of them don't know why the Phoenix opened the Black Scrolls. It seemed like it was there, there was no narrative purpose as far as they're concerned. And I just wanted to again dissect that and look at it in a little more detail because any clan that becomes just a vehicle is less rich. So First, I'm going to set down something that is old news to us, but the characters in the setting and the players at the time did not know, which was, there's the prophecy of the Seven Thunders, that it would take, you know, one representative of each of the great clans to face Fulang to essentially determine the fate of the mortal realm. We've all heard of it. Characters since the Day of Thunder have heard of it, but at the time... Of the clan war, neither the players nor the characters knew this prophecy. There were very, very limited individuals who did, and none of them were talking. Togashi knew, and the hooded Ronin, who was a descendant of Shinsei, knew. And those are the only ones I can really affirmatively say knew and were alive. Shouju knew part of it, but he was dead. And... Based on her actions, I have to assume Kachiko did not know. So, what happens is Scorpion Clan Coup is put down, Shouju is killed, the Scorpion Clan are declanned and largely exiled in terms of socially, and Yogo Junzo opens the wasting disease. Kachiko starts poisoning the Emperor, although we don't know which starts first, those two things happen. Emperor gets very sick. Kachiko doesn't know this, but she, the Emperor is starting to become possessed by Fulang. And the Shadowlands activity throughout the Empire starts going up. Like, there's roaming bands of undead. 
nobody, or, or very close to nobody, knows what's caught, what the cause is. And, and this is quite important, the implication is that most of the Empire doesn't even know precisely what is contained within the Black Scrolls. Just knowledge and insight of a relatively dark nature. The Empire as a whole had no idea why the undead were suddenly acting up. They had no idea why there was a plague going throughout the Empire. And the best scholars, sages, wise people throughout the Empire were stumped. So the Phoenix send Isawa Tadaka to go search for the Black Scrolls, hoping that the Black Scrolls will provide some insight so the Empire can fight this. And the words from the flavor text and fictions at the time were the rising tide of darkness. And I think it is safe to assume that the Phoenix had some idea of what risks were involved, simply because the alternative is to assume they had no idea that it was dangerous, which just doesn't seem to make logical sense. So they study the Black Scrolls, members of the clan start getting tainted, but by the time of the Crimson and Jade set, the Phoenix have at least uncovered the prophecy of the Seven Thunders and the need to gather and protect the descendant of Shinsei and the Seven Thunders to face Fulang. Again, I note that there were a few individuals who did know this, like the Hooded Ronin in particular, but they weren't talking about it. So for purposes of both the players and the characters, the Phoenix are the ones who bring the awareness of this need to the Empire. Plus, and again, we know that the Hooded Ronin knows this. Maybe Togashi knows this as well. It's not clear. All 12 Black Scrolls have to be opened, or Fuling does not become mortal. So, basically, the idea that the Phoenix were doing this just as a power grab just doesn't match the canon that was written at the time. But it's a very common thing that players like to trout out, and, and it's important, again, to... to it's, it's still funny, but it's important to have that nuance so you can appreciate the narrative role of the Phoenix during the Clan War. And that's, that's really it. Okay. I, uh, I don't really have anything to argue with, uh, uh, about there. So just a little bit of, uh, education for the, the audience. I still think we're fine on time. So okay. I think that what we will do now is hop to a shorter topic. And let me say that we we did get the audience requests about the Mantis, and so the next episode will be about the Mantis, but that's not going to fit in the same uh, episode as this. So we're going to hop to a more recent user request that should be pretty discreet. And that was about Matsu Hitomi. And basically, so you have Matsu Hitomi. She's apparently a revered ancestor of the Lion Clan. And the question is... Why is this person a revered ancestor? Again, I'll, I'll lay out what I, my understanding of the basic storyline with Matsu Hitomi is. And, uh, Fred, let me know if you think there are important details I'm lifting out or anything. So, so Matsu Hitomi obviously is with the lion for, I don't remember why. She ends up being sent to assist the daimyo of the Miramoto in uh, a war against the crab. And she, again, for reasons I'm not entirely sure about, swears to the Miramoto Daimyo that, that she will do anything that he asks of her. And so 
he has her lead his armies. She defeats the crab. Happy day. And then this daimyo, who's apparently not the most uh, happy, nice guy in the world, says, oh, wait a minute. I've, I've got this general here who swore to do anything I would tell her to do. I will now have her attack the lion for me. And she has to do it because she swore to do anything uh, I told her to do. And so Hitomi then, in fact, does what the, the Miramoto Daimyo asks. Uh, it's Miramoto Turin, I think. And she yep. starts attacking the lion and is doing well against them until she is told to attack a city or a fortress that is being held by someone that she loves, uh, Kodo Godaigo. And at that point, she then breaks her oath, refuses to do what she uh, is instructed to do, and runs away. She ends up getting hunted down before she dies. She curses Godaigo is sent after her. Before she dies, she ends up cursing Godaigo, so he ends up as an undead, and she ends up dead, and later she comes back in the war spirit. So I, I think the sort of question is, so you have this person who apparently makes a foolish oath, and then ends up breaking the oath, and then ends up cursing somebody to become an undead, and when she breaks the oath, she doesn't break the oath because, oh, well, I swore a greater oath to the lion, or, well, I'm going to commit seppuku instead. She breaks the oath because she's in love with somebody, which is, as we all know, a terrible reason, right, for samurai to do something. Uh, that's your, you know, that's usually someone who has failed when you you have that classic scenario of choosing love or duty, and you choose love, well, that kind of makes you as a failure as a samurai. So th the question is, why is this person a revered ancestor for anybody as opposed to a morality play of what not to do? That's a fair summation of the history and the issue. I'll start, actually, by using a much more contemporary example that players kind of get their heads around and support. Doji Kurohito. He leads with his heart, extends his personal capital to assist and protect Isawa Akiko, marries her. She ends up being a Gozoku member. He's seppuku. An otherwise exemplary leadership of the crane ends in scandal and what should be disgrace, right? But both the players and the characters uh, since then have said, no, actually, Kurohito was an honorable guy. He, he fell on in a tragic way, but he was noble. So Hitomi is kind of positioned in a similar spot. It's, it's almost the reverence is coming from appreciation of nobility of suffering. And I agree, she is an oathbreaker. And certainly within the setting, the lion would say it's completely unreasonable of Turan to, you know, take advantage of someone's foolishly worded oath. But she's not honored for being necessarily, for discharging her oaths honorably, but for actually being human and resolving these in a way that her peers found appropriate. And the, the whole, how did she curse Godaigo and turn him into an, that, that's very confusing and way beyond the amount of time I have to research <laughs> and get into. Because, <laughs> Like, Godaigo as a card is Shadowlands. And you would not normally think that kind of curse from someone who has no history of Maho 
and is in no way impugned in that sort of thing, could do that to him. So there's some implication because of the mystery of her death, that perhaps there was a third party involved who cursed him as well, or whatnot. It's a lot of threads to get into, and that's, you know, to the side. But really, it, it, in my view, Hitomi is attempting to fulfill her oath as honorably and diligently as she can. Like, I mean, she even attacks the lion because she was she had made that oath. But the lion recognized that she's in an impossible situation. And it's just kind of magnitude of accomplishment in life that gets her past. On the four corners, she probably shouldn't. Uh, same way Kisada, on the four corners of what he actually did, probably was not going to be elevated to fortunehood. But a combination of social response... It, it's mostly social response. Like, Rokugan is a setting that is not a rule-of-law setting as I understand it. It's a setting where, if any rule of law applies, it's the rule of social acceptance. So a lot of things in the setting, and this is part of the setting, are justified because they were accepted, or because people say that's the appropriate course of action. Um, I think it helps that no one is really standing up for Tudon, because by all accounts, he was a bit opportunistic, he's, he's not re- highly regarded the same way other characters were. And so you've got someone who appears to be kind of a star, going down in tragedy, which humans, both fictional and real, tend to remember. So I think the question's valid, and I think the answer is, in this case, A, lion parents probably use the story of Matsuhitomi to discipline children into not making stupid oaths. (laughs) Same way crane parents want their children to be remembered for great accomplishments like Doshi Hoturi, the crane thunder, but they want their kids to live scandal-free lives the way Hochiri's younger brother, Kuwanin, did. And so Hitomi is another example of very memorable, but not entirely for good reasons. There you go. I have to say, and I know this is partially, uh, I mean, this is not your fault. This is the uh, the subject you've been given. That was not at all convincing, friend. <laughs> it's the best I've got. I know. That, that was, right? Why is Matsu Hitomi revered? Well, because people said she should be revered. Yeah, it's, it is circular <laughs> to some extent. But, I yeah. mean, a, a lot of time in role-playing game, in role-playing sessions, in court, what is the proper course of conduct? What the head of the court says is the proper course of conduct. <laughs> and that is correct. It, it, it's just how the setting operates socially. Um, and so, yeah, there is there are some issues there where I, I don't think she is ever going to be held up with the same regard as, say, Akoto or Lady Matsu. But her story is supposed to be one of tragedy, and there is something to be said for someone who bears the slings and arrows. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and at the same time, I, you, just to be clear, I uh, it does not seem like she comported herself with any noteworthy honor in the situation. Clearly, I, I think in certainly by any standard I would care to apply, yeah, the, the Miramoto Daimyo is is taking advantage of the situation in a, in a way that he should not be. I, I And I, I think where she sort of fails, in, like, if, if we're trying to do it in an objective sense, what, you know, <laughs> whatever uh, that means, as compared to the just, okay, well, because the this, this setting says so, you, you, you compared her to 
Kurohito? Kurohito. And, <laughs> right, and what, what happens with Kurohito is that when he finds out about this dishonorable conduct, he executes the woman he loves, and then yep. he kills himself. And yep. I, I think that Hitomi's story, while much less complicated, if that happens, I mean, her... I guess that the proper end to her story, if you're doing the right thing, having made this foolish oath, is you're ordered to attack the lion, and then you commit seppuku. Or you, you request permission, it's granted, you seppuku, right? Uh, based on the write-up, she goes into her own general or leader's tent, kills him, and then goes on the run, which is less acceptable. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Right? You and, think? you know, you might read in between the lines and assume, and the, the lying characters almost certainly probably assume this, that the order was somehow dishonorable, or the leader was somehow dishonorable, or Churon was somehow dishonorable. Which, there's not enough information in the canon portrayal to make that out, but it is sort of the assumption that the lion would take as a given that there is, n- and, and may very well have been the case, but there's no evidence for it. There's... Oh. There's a lack of a complete record. Yeah, I mean, and it. I would say that it was probably dishonorable. If it wasn't strictly dishonorable, yeah. it would be one of those situations where you can be a dirtbag and still be honorable. I mean, right? Even if it's not, quote unquote, dishonorable in in some technical sense, yeah. it's certainly scummy and underhanded and you yeah. know worthy of scorn. Yeah. But. But I'm only speaking to canon sources. Sure. A reasonable and likely additional detail you could add to make the entire thing work is if the war that she's been ordered to prosecute is a dishonorable war, in which case everything else she does follows. But that's not stated. I think the, the thing is, though, that even if you give that it's a dishonorable war, which mm-hmm. it probably was, right? He's allied yeah. enough with the lion that they provide him... With, with this assistance, and then he yep. turns around and uses the assistance to attack them. Yep. Even if you give that that's dishonorable, first of all, you could kill yourself, right, Sifuku, because yep. that's what yep. they... The other thing you could do is, oddly enough, almost a better way to do is, you could just then potentially break your oath to to the to Miramoto Turin, which obviously yep. is not honorable, but is more understandable. Like, you, you know, you yep. could probably justify that with some preceding oath. It's She, like, takes the possibly the worst way possible by yep. she honors the promise attacks her own clan and then breaks her oath anyway so she's just for yep. for for a reason that's in the eyes of Rokugan officially although right i mean i guess even within Rokugan right there's the whole what you're supposed to do and what everybody knows that you do that's right there's a that's right there's a fortune of romantic love even though yep. romantic love is supposed to be not well. something that is important to you at all i but yep. it, you know she she then she breaks her oath because of love. I don't know. Yep. So I, I figure the fortune of romantic love partially has as a duty helping out the people who are suffering from romantic love because they need all the help they can get. <laughs> um, but yeah, this this one is just one that's very difficult to unravel, and and so unfortunately the setting does have stories like that. If you analyze it cleanly, yeah, it, it there are difficulties. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I think that unless there was, was there anything else that you wanted on those subjects, Fred, that you thought we had left out? Not really, no. Okay. 
Well, then, I, I think that we will call it a wrap for this episode, and we will be back next time, probably very, very soon, with yes. an episode about the uh, Mantis. But until then, for Fred Wan, I am Chris Stevenson. You've been listening to Strange Assembly. You can find more Strange Assembly either by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes or by visiting us at www.strangeassembly.com. I always like to hear from you. You can email me directly, chris at strangeassembly.com, or checking us out at facebook.com slash strangeassembly or at strangeassembly on Twitter. And until next time, never stop gaming.